and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will have no mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet, the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head. And they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, faced with difficult passages like this one, I am kind of at a loss. So Lord, I pray this morning that as we deal with a difficult text, that you would make your plea to your people through this weak and stammering tongue set in the mouth of a redeemed sinner, now your child through Jesus Christ. Lord God, open eyes to see your glory, open ears to hear of your wonders, and Lord God, most especially, open and change hearts. Lord God, by the, by the use of your word, by the foolishness of my preaching, and by the power of your spirit, rip out hearts of stone and replace them with hearts of flesh. That's a miracle, Lord. And I pray for that miracle this morning. I beg you for that miracle this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So before I begin and deal with something fairly weighty here, I have to make a confession. It's kind of a strange confession because I am a Newfoundlander, born and bred, despite the lack of an accent. I am actually a Newfoundlander. I have never really lived long, long periods of time elsewhere. I'm from Newfoundland. And I actually like to walk. I have a nice little watch here that tracks my number of steps. I get lots of steps every week, every day, actually. And I like to walk. And for someone who likes to walk and lives in Newfoundland, you'd think I'd be okay with climbing hills. Between you and me, I'm not. Just completely not okay with hills. Uh, I've walked 
the, the Signal Hill Trail, you guys have probably walked it. It's kind of a good you know, thing to, for Newfoundlanders to do. Tourists often do it. I like to walk the, the, the trail, but I don't ever walk anymore from the battery up to the Signal Hill because of that staircase at the end. I've actually gotten to the end of that staircase, you know, that staircase that goes straight up, it seems, and I've just turned around and gone back because I really, really don't like hills. Really. Now, that's not really a big deal, you'd think, right? But it's always been a problem of mine. When I lived in Asia, I used to go sometimes hiking with other friends of mine, and I'd go try to go hiking to these very beautiful mountains. And of course, people would go up the mountain and you know, go to see the great view from the top of the mountain, and I would get about halfway up, and because I really like Krispy Kreme donuts that were there, I probably was out of breath a little too early, and I'd wait and stop and sit in a grove of trees and let my friends go on up to the top of the mountain. And I got, I got to see beauty, I got to feel nature, I got to see great things, but nothing compared to what my friends got to see. And you know, since now I live in Canada and you know, Korea is now the other side of the world from me, I'm probably never going to be living long-term in Korea again. God has his plans, I don't know them, but I don't think I will. I kind of regret that because now it's very unlikely I will get to see those vistas from the top of the mountain. And what does that have to do with Hosea today? The scripture is an awful lot like walking sometimes. If you walk to the places that you can get to easily, you can see a lot of beauty, you can see a lot of benefit, you can get a lot of truth and glory. It's great stuff. But if you're not willing to deal with the difficult parts, the parts that cause a little work, that cause a little shock, a little stress, honestly, you're going to miss an awful lot of what the Bible has to say, an awful lot of beautiful things the Bible has to say, a lot of depth that's designed to change us, to make us more into the image of Christ. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that the word of God is, uh, the word of God is, you know, the scriptures, all scriptures are God-breathed and useful for teaching, for correction, for reproof, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be prepared for any good work. And it says all scripture, so it includes Hosea chapter 1, which is a very shocking text. I tried, to, I tried to paper it over a little bit, but I'll just explain to you a couple of ways that this is actually shocking. First of all, it uses a word we don't like to use. I mean, it said three times in verse 2, uh, a word that we often use as a swear word today, as, a, as an insult today. It means serially unfaithful for bad reasons. And it's used three times. Even worse than that, we see God giving direct and shockingly bad marital advice to one of his prophets. I mean, you guys who are single today, just by way of warning, do not use Hosea chapter 1 as dating advice. Just saying. That's not what it's for. It's, it, it, but God is telling Hosea directly to do it. 
And there are beautiful, important things here to be said for marriage. We'll get to them in a minute. But let's just say, if I as an elder said that to somebody, I'd probably be called before the other elders pretty quickly. It's not even just advice either. God gives it as a command. And if that wasn't enough for the shocks, there's at least three traumatic shockings for children in this one. God commands Hosea to name his children poorly. (laughs) I mean, one of them you can get away with, Jezreel. You know, there's actually a double entendre possible there. But for uh, the two other children, no mercy, not my people. I mean, can you imagine how that's going to feel for them? Their father is going to call them, uh, call them out. Hey, no mercy, no mercy, supper. Not my people, not my people. Come over, please. Like, it doesn't, it seems bad. It seems like, from my perspective, that seems like it would be bad for their self-esteem. Yet God actually tells a prophet to do this. And we don't get the opportunity to say that this is merely, uh, merely a, uh, an analogy. or an, It says that this is a real dude. Hosea really did this. So we can't just say that this is a matter of, I don't know, some good imagery that the Bible is using. It is imagery, but it's imagery that's being lived out in the life of Hosea. But we need to look at it. And I I hope today to show you why we need to look at it. Because what we see here is the kernel of one of the most complete images of God's love for his people that we have. If you go to the New Testament and you deal with the kingdom of God and the way that Christ relates to us, his church, this image is the image that is most commonly used. The image of marriage. This is very... Very important, very beautiful, but from the beginning a little shocking. So let's, get, let's just dive in and deal with it. So when we look at Hosea chapter 1, uh, it's actually what I'm dealing with is the first part of an entire story. The story will continue on to chapter 3. We'll deal with it a little bit more later on when I, when I get to chapters 2 and 3 about the structure of it because that'll help us uh, open two, chapters 2 and 3 a little bit better. But just to remind you of some of the context that I dealt with before, by this point in in the people of God's history, there are now two states of Jewish people. There's the state of Israel, which is in the north, and there's the state of Judah, which is in the south. They've been separated for several hundred years. Ever since the death of Solomon and the ascension of his very foolish son, Rehoboam, and 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 the rebellious man Jeroboam for the north. Jeroboam, who eventually became king Jeroboam of Israel, and Rehoboam, who was made king of Judah. Now, both states are not in the same place. The south is a little bit more faithful than the north, but both of them are not really walking with God. Both of them will pay some lip service to God, but neither is really doing it. They're increasingly unfaithful. They've been increasingly unfaithful for centuries. They don't follow God. And the problem is that this is a kind of darkness that to them doesn't feel dark. 
it feels like they're successful. It feels like they're, they've got at least some benefits. They're not dealing with problems as much as they could. They seem secure. They feel secure. They're prosperous. And yet, they are courting the judgment of God. Their eyes are closed by the fact that everything looks fine. I don't know if you've ever, if you know how that might feel. You see a society that feels like everything is going well, and yet you know that the society is actually in rebellion to God. I think you may actually know that feeling. It's, it, it kind of shows our culture in some ways. The darkness doesn't feel dark. And it's into this situation that the Lord God gives his prophets some very shocking words. Because people don't hear it unless it's going to be shocking to them. If you're just going to be polite about this kind of stuff, people are going to say, oh, well, maybe you, maybe you have a point, and then they'll pat you on the head and then go drink coffee and talk about it later. We'll, we'll, we'll discuss it. We'll have, a, we'll have a confab about it, and we'll just you know, deal with it in some later time. It's easy to paper it over, and so God gives his prophets shocking advice. Uh, Hosea is at the same time as Isaiah, and he's also writing at the same time as the prophet Joel, both of whom also are going to have some very shocking words for the people of Israel. And it's in this context that God gives a difficult call. Chapter 1, verse 2. When the Lord God spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Deblam, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now, we don't get all of the shock of this. Most of our shock is probably based on the word that I'm not going to repeat more than I have to because people will get mad at me. But that's not the most shocking part of this text. And in order to get the shock, I have to actually explain to you a little bit differently what marriage is. Because if you just kind of get the marriage understanding that the culture gives us, it's not what God is talking about. You see, we talk about marriage like it's a contract. And we think contracts are very important and they're very, very valid. And, you know, the law will come down on you if you break a contract. But usually I have to say to you, a contract is pretty common. And contracts are broken all the time. And if a contract is broken, the two sides are just going to come to some agreement about how to divvy things up. So this is what, and since we as a society tend to see marriages as contracts, we imagine that that's what a marriage is, that, we, that it's just a, an agreement, and if the agreement no longer works out for the parties, we should just break the contract and start a new contract. That's not what God means by marriage. And just to make sure that we don't I don't have a lot of time to go through a whole thing about marriage, but let's just deal with one passage that kind of explains it. It's Jesus, so we know that it's New Testament, and he's quoting the Old Testament. This is Mark chapter 10, verses 5 to 9, quoting the tail end of Genesis 2. And Jesus said to them, Jesus is answering a question, why did Moses let us divorce people? And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment. But from the beginning, God made them male and female. 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And this is the money verse for this. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now this is not a sermon about divorce or remarriage or anything like that, but get for the moment right now that God thinks marriage is extremely important. It is a huge deal. Now, I don't want to scare people with this, but this is an image that God will use repeatedly throughout the Bible. So when you're married, you should take your marriage very seriously. You should take, the husbands, take the call to love your wives as Christ loved the church very seriously. God even says that he won't hear your prayers if you don't. Women, when it comes to marry, the respect for your husband, that's not an option. You do need to respect your husband. This is why it's so shocking that God tells Hosea to marry someone who is not going to take the marriage seriously. He knows it from the beginning. She is not going to be faithful to him. Not only is she not going to be faithful to him in a a little sense, she's going to be repeatedly unfaithful to him. It's going to be so bad that when we look at uh, kids number two and three, we don't know who their dad is. And probably neither does she. That's pretty unfaithful. You see, and we understand this a little bit, Those of you who've gone through stresses in marriage and sometimes even the disillusion of marriage know the feeling. It doesn't feel just like a contract broke. It doesn't feel like you have to return that broken camera to Best Buy. It feels like a betrayal. Because, well, based on the the creation mandate, that's what it is. Anger and hurt are the natural response when there are actions against a marriage because marriages are just that important. That's the natural response. And honestly, that's what God is telling us. You see, what is being said here when, he, when God tells us that, you know, uh, the reason for why he's telling Hosea to marry Gomer He says, for the land commits great by forsaking the Lord. This tells us three things. God really is married to his people. He really is. Friends, if you are in the people of God, you are married to God. God has promised he will remain faithful to you. And he takes that far more seriously than a contract. That's beautiful. But secondly... He really feels betrayed by our unfaithfulness. Let's face it, he has a right to. Because we're married to him. 
and, and it is kind to think that you know God is married to us. You know, it makes it feel like you know we can't, he's going to uh, uh, paper over a lot of our sins, and that's actually true. You know, in marriages, I don't think any marriage lasts a year, let alone fifty, by simply you know not forgiving the other person. But it does not. It doesn't change the fact that betrayals feel like betrayals. That unfaithfulness feels like a real betrayal. And God really does feel that. And so as a result, our idolatry, just as the idolatry of Israel and Judah at the time, isn't mere contract breaking. It's betrayal. So get that image in in your heads for a moment. I I mean, I, I hate to be harsh on this, but this is the fact Our idolatry is betrayal to God. Let that sink for a moment. (laughs) When I say that it's a betrayal, we know that God sees our betrayals coming. He knows everything. He knows the end from the beginning. He's, he, at the time that he saved me, he knew every sin that I would commit in my entire life. He did. Hosea knew that Gomer was going to cheat on him. He knew that. If you are in relationship with anybody here, I've got a secret for you, unless you are extremely naive, and if you want to stay really, really naive, cover your ears right now, The people you're in relationship are going to betray you because they're sinners. It's just going to happen. Does that change the feeling of betrayal when it happens? I don't see anybody nodding for that. It it still feels bad. And that's why God is using this extreme image to talk about the way that Israel is cheating on him. And has been cheating on him, not for a year, not for two years, not for ten years, but for centuries at this point. This is how God feels about it. And before you think that, you know, well, I don't commit idolatry, none of us are Baal worshippers, I'm assuming. None of us are going to the Temple of Diana after this. In fact, most of us are probably not even going to go to the mosque or to to the synagogue after this. But like the people of Israel and Judah, you still are probably going to trust in things that aren't God. That's actually what Judah's problem was. Not so much that they simply said, oh, well, I'm, going to go, I'm going to go worship Baal. It's more I'm going to go worship the armies of Egypt and the armies of Assyria because they can give me strength. I'm going to, I'm going to worship security. I'm going to worship money. I'm going to worship anything other than God. I'm going to trust in those things and not in the God of the universe. That's the picture God is painting. God is faithful. He's infinitely faithful. He's an infinitely good God. Hosea is probably a good man. He's a prophet of God. God works in his life. But Gomer sins against him and we sin against God. And so then it doesn't seem quite as shocking that God then continues the picture with 
more shocking statements, but statements of judgment. And I know we don't like to think about judgment, but we have to. The first child is going to be named Jezreel. And God, the Lord God said to him, call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel, and on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Now, I told you that uh, Jezreel is kind of a double entendre. You can hear it, it can actually have two different connotations. Jezreel actually means God sows. Now, if you remember... Ancient Near East, the way you sow isn't necessarily the way we sow today. Sometimes you'll you know, get down and plant things. That's not what this means. God's sowing meant that, you know, taking seeds and sowing them out, and they will, some of them will catch purchase and some others. So it can have both the sense of scattering and of planting. And what he seems to mean here is the sense of scattering. Because the judgment that God is going to bring on Israel which he does historically under, in, under, the, under the Assyrians, will separate, will scatter Israel to the four winds. And the blood of Jehu, uh, if you want to read that story, just start reading it, 1 Kings 21, and keep going until you're halfway through 2 Kings. The king Ahab in the Valley of Jezreel, he actually took some land from another man by cheating him, having him murdered, and then stole the land. And because of that, God put judgment on Ahab and his family, a judgment that was then brought about by a guy named Jehu. Now, Jehu did actually overthrow Ahab. He did get rid of some of the worst of, uh, offenses of Ahab's family. And Ahab's wife, by the way, you might have heard of her name, Jezebel. He did get rid of all that. But he did go a little far. He wiped them out, killed them all, killed, their, killed innocent children. And to make it worse, Jehu didn't even really follow God after that. He continued the unfaithfulness that Ahab had. And so that the result is this is why God is going to put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel and break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel, and bring, a, punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. The second one, no mercy. She conceived again and bore a daughter and said to him, call her name no mercy. And some of your translations are going to say lo rohama. That kind of weakens it a little bit because you assume that that doesn't, you know, that you can paper that over. You, nobody, I, I could say, oh, my name's lo rohama. What does that mean? Well, no mercy. But you don't have to say it. You could just, you know, say, oh, I, well, I don't know what that means. But it does mean no mercy. It weakens, the, it weakens the shock a little bit. The original Hebrews would have gotten the shock of the name. Call her name, no, so she conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name no mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. So God is going to make it absolutely clear that he's bringing punishment. He's going to make it absolutely clear that it's he that's bringing punishment. Because he's going to make a distinction between slightly less rebellious 
Judah and completely rebellious Israel. He's going to watch Israel uh, go away, and then he's going to save Jerusalem. And he does that, by the way, if you want to read about it in 2 Kings chapter 19, starting at verse 35. Again, keep reading after that. It's, it's, very, it's an interesting stuff. God saves one and lets the other go. Just point out that this really is God showing his displeasure on his people. But that's not the worst of the judgment. Verses 8 and 9, Loami, again, uh, another name that's papering over the truth of what the name means, which means not my people. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son, and the Lord said, call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. That would run, cause the blood in an Israelite to run cold, because that's the precise opposite of the promise given in Leviticus. Just read, just for the sake of context, get this. Leviticus chapter 26, verse 3 and verse 12. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, and then I slip down to 12, and I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. So following God and he will be their people. And as I said, this is a covenant between him and the people of Israel and they broke it. And just to give you an idea, between verses 3, verses 4 to 11 of Leviticus chapter 26 tells you about all of the benefits that God is going to give Israel for their faithfulness as part of being of the people of God. So by saying this, God says, I am removing your protection entirely. You will no longer be called my people. And get get this because this makes for an understanding of what it would be. It's like the jilted husband after hundreds of events finally says, enough. I'm filing for divorce. If you've ever had that feeling, I'm sorry. That's exactly what this is. It's never a happy thing. It's never a good thing. But that's essentially the effect of what God is saying here. The covenant no longer stands. All of the emotions involved, they are now coming. Hope seems to be gone. And now, sometimes I tend to think visually because I've watched too many movies in my life. I tend to think of this as like, you know that scene sometimes you get in movies where everything seems to be getting darker and darker and darker and you think it can't get any darker and then it does. Things that you thought were true and valid and going to save things to the end, they fall apart too. And everything seems to be collapsing in on itself. And then, and just get, the, just get the level of this. This is, in this context, one of the most beautiful words in Scripture. It is monosyllabic. 
the Lord says, the Lord God says, at the darkest time when he says all of the judgment that's coming upon his people Israel for their wanton sinfulness for centuries. He brings the hammer of all of the extreme judgment they so richly deserve and begins with the word yet. Friends, is there a more beautiful word when God says it? God looks at the truth of the people of Israel, of the ways that they've, they've jilted him and of the ways that he needs to bring punishment because they're just not getting it. They just keep running away from him. He offers them joy everlasting and they just run the other way. He offers them everything and they, they just keep turning away. He wants nothing except their obedience, their love, and they refuse it. And so he finally says, that's it. But then he says, yet. Starting to read at verse 10. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. By the way, that's actually a promise. He's repeating the promise that he gave to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, previous to the, to the covenant of the law that you see in Leviticus, previous to all of that, previous to being saved from Israel. He says, the children of Israel should be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And it won't be just bringing it back to what it was before. Get this. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together. I know you don't think that's a big deal. I used to live in Korea. Korea's, uh, Korea's kind of got an interesting cultural thing because they are a divided country. North Korea and South Korea are separated. There are very few people, though, that you'd run into in Korea that if, if the option was available without, without problems and without the economic things that are likely going to happen if they try to reunify the two countries, if they could see it, they would reunify the two tomorrow. Both governments have actually an office of reunification. So those of us who don't live in that kind of a th situation don't quite grasp what this means. But God promises through Hosea that the people of Israel shall be one people. He promises that the people who were once not his people will become his people. They will be called not merely people, not merely friends or not merely, but children of the living God. He gives that option. And they shall appoint for themselves one head. All of these people will point to one person, one man, who will be the head of all of the people of God. 
They shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. And here it means the second, the second of the two ideas I gave you. Jezreel meaning sowing, planting, spreading, and growth. That's the image he's giving. And then he continues, Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. Anybody understand who that might be? The one head? You know what Hosea is referring to here? A people who were once not his people being given the right to become children of God. Wait, I remember that in a text somewhere. I think, Steve, did you preach on that? I think you did. Those who believed on his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. Children of God. People who were once not his people. People lost in the worst sin and depravity possible. Children of God. This happened. Not not merely forgiveness, friends. That's not just what God offers through Christ. He offers redemption. Sorry, I get a little choked up by this one. Because I know it. And the whole New Testament talks about this. But I'm just going to give you one example of what it talks about. In Romans chapter 11, verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this, brother, mystery brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. They became rebellious. They turned away from God. They walked away from God. They continue in sin and not following God until the fullness of the Gentiles. That's you and me, unless you're actually Jewish. I don't think any of you are, but if you are, I apologize, but... Gentiles come in, us. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Friends, we will all be called children of God because we have faith in the one head, the one king, Jesus Christ, the righteous. In this way, already Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards to the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of the forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. He takes marriage very seriously. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too now have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all that he may have mercy on all. 
So what does this mean for us? First of all, the sinner's redemption is in Christ. All sinner's redemption is in Christ. Friends, do you think you're incapable of being loved by God? Do you think you've done far more than you could ever imagine against God? Were you struck a little bit by that first passage in the judgment of God, realizing that that's actually what you deserved? Rejoice. The redemption has come. The king has come. By his death and resurrection, we know that we can be saved, not merely forgiven of sins, but redeemed from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friends, this is available to you right now. You don't have to wait another second. You do not have to walk an aisle. You don't have to do anything. Just put your faith, your trust in Jesus for his salvation and you will be saved. You will know the redemption because the redemption has already been worked for you. If you want to talk to me about it, whether I know, how I know this stuff, how I know that the gospel is true, I'll be right here at the end of the, at the, end of the service. Just come talk to me. I'm, I'm totally game for that. But this has a couple of ramifications, and this is actually for everybody here, whether you are calling yourself a believer or not. First of all, trust in Jesus Christ. I was made fun of when I was a preacher in Korea because I used to end all of my sermons with that statement, trust in Christ. But it's pretty much a given. You know, that's pretty much what the Bible will tell you. I mean, that's John has it pretty clearly. I think Steve keeps repeating it every single time he preaches about how this is given that you may believe and in believing you may have life in his name. But trust in Christ And that doesn't just mean for those of you who don't know Jesus right now. It means for those of us who do know Jesus right now, but because of some other things, are trusting in other things right now. I'll I'll be clear again, what it says in the text of Hosea, that's betrayal. That's turning against God. That's breaking the covenant. That's turning against God, having faith in anything other than Jesus above all. That's sin. And sin is not merely brokenness. I know that lots of people like to use that. It's not merely a mistake. It's rebellion to the living God. But we have the opportunity to repent. We have the ability to turn away right now, to trust not in our good looks, not in our money, not in the people who love us, not in the Uh, stuff that we know or the stuff that we do, but in Jesus. So trust in Jesus. And just in case you don't get the implication of that because it was the problem that the people of Israel did, they they paid lip service to it fairly well. They would talk about how God was a good God, but they would never actually follow him. Live like it. Live like it. I mean that our lives should be marked by the grace that's been shown us. 
if God really has redeemed us, if God really has brought us from death into life, if he has shown us mercy from the depths of our sins against him, shouldn't we be like that? Shouldn't we be ready to show grace and mercy to those around us? Shouldn't we rejoice to forgive the people who do horrible things to us? The Lord God forgave us for doing horrible things to him. While we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus died on the cross. While we were his enemies. And now he made us friends. How much more should we be able to love our enemies? How much more should we be able to show love to those who need love? And I feel very convicted by that myself. It means that in very tangible ways, our lives should look different because we trust different, because the world is different than the people outside think it is. The Lord God is not merely a help. He is the king. The Lord God is not merely my friend. He's my redeemer. He's my father. He's my brother. He's my husband. I know that's kind of weird, but go with it. It's what the Bible says. So we are saved in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, we have all of this blessing. In Jesus' name, we have this strength. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let's pray. Lord God, again, I'm left praying that you, these people heard a better sermon than was preached because I pray that by your spirit you were in it. Lord God, as the worship team comes forward, I pray that you would be uh, helping us all to worship you in more than just words. Let the things we say in song right now be our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. God's people said, amen. amen.